When Adam and Eve sinned against God, there was created a chasm of sin that separated them from a completely righteous and holy God. And when considering this chasm, it has been presented, and perhaps you have articulated it like this, and I certainly have. We talk about this chasm of sin, and we're on this side. There's a chasm of sin like a canyon, like a Grand Canyon. God's on the other side, and the canyon is so deep, it's like, how can we get across to the other side? Tonight, I want to suggest a different visual. The chasm isn't far but high. It's high. It's too high. When man sinned, we fell. We fell. Paul put it this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And no matter how hard we try, we will never be able to reach God. Man, left to his own self, left to his own devices, you can never reach God high enough to God. There is nothing we can do to cross the chasm of sin or reach above the chasm of sin. Simply put, the height from which we have fallen cannot be scaled. I don't care how good of a rock climber you are. You cannot in your own self climb high enough to reach God. This hasn't stopped men from trying. It hasn't stopped man from developing systems of religion to, att to attempt the climb. In Islam, one is asked to closely adhere to the five pillars of Islam and a rigid system of laws in order to approach Allah. In Hinduism, the worshiper must follow one of four paths to what the Hindus call moshka, which is salvation. The paths are marked by human effort. The Bible and Christianity teach something completely different from all of the religions of the world. The Bible teaches that man, through his own effort, can never reach God. One of the main points of the Ten Commandments and the other laws of the Old Testament, of which there are 613. 613 laws of the Old Testament. And what this teaches us, what the Jews learned, is that no one can do it. No one can keep the law. And Paul clearly points out that if you're guilty in one area of the law, that you're guilty in all the areas of the law. There is a verse that describes the value of our human efforts to do righteousness, to do right. This verse describes each one of us tonight on our very, very best day. Think about it. The day that you feel so righteous, so holy. You know that day? Can you think of it? Just nod. Say yes. I can think. Here's what the verse says. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. You'll see it on the screen. But we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. What does this verse tell us? That our righteousnesses are like dirty laundry. 
Actually, in the Hebrew, it's much worse, and I'll spare us all, okay? Those of you been around the block a few years, you know. Ask me if you're curious after the service. All of our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds are like dirty laundry, kind of like a Don Henley song. So, okay, that, that was dirty laundry, Don Henley. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Come on, folks. Come on, let's have some fun. Let's have some fun, all right? In God's eyes, all of our righteousness are like dirty laundry. So what do we do? What is man to do? This is where Christianity is completely different from all the world's religious systems. In Christianity, we cannot climb up to God's standards. We cannot ascend to the height from which we have fallen. Something else has to be done. Dinesh D'Souza. Are you familiar with him? He's an author and speaker, and he's the author of many, many books, of which I've read many, one of which is a great book called What's So Great About Christianity? Great, great book. And this is a quote from that book where he describes this dilemma that man is in. He says, and I quote, man cannot ascend to God's level because God's level is too high. Therefore, there is only one remedy. God must come down to man's level. Scandalous though it may seem, God must quite literally become man and assume the burden of man's sins, end quote. So how exactly did God come down to our level? First, he gave a prototype. He gave a prototype and then he fulfilled the prototype in the antitype. You know what a prototype is, right? It's kind of like, hey, here's the, here's the plans. Here's how, here's what it is. And this is what God did in the Old Testament. To find out about the prototype, we have to go back to a place called Mount Horeb in Arabia around 4, uh, 1445 B.C. Okay, so we're going back in time. Back in the, um, you know, DeLorean, hop in the DeLorean, go back to 1445 BC, back to Mount Horeb. And we talked about Moses last week, and we talked about how God commissioned him to be a deliverer of the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. And, and the conclusion of that story is that Moses did heed that commission. He did lead the Hebrew people out of of Egypt, all the way out to this place, this mountain, Mount Horeb. It's also called throughout the Old Testament, the mountain of God, because this is where Moses met with God, and this is where, this is the mountain of God. And Moses met with God on the mountain, and in these meetings, God gave Moses the plans, the blueprints the prototype of the structure that would be God's dwelling place on earth with the people of Israel. And so we're going to have, God was going to have this dwelling place. This place was going to be his dwelling place on the earth with his people. And so tonight we're going to look at Exodus chapter 25. uh, And let's pick it up verse 1. It says this, 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and then and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So these verses that we just read are the verses where God begins to talk about the, 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 the making of what is going to be the prototype of his dwelling. It's a prototype, but he will dwell in it, but it's a prototype that speaks forward to something else that's going to be what we call in Bible, you know, hermeneutics and that, the antitype. So the, the prototype is the first type and then the antitype, which is the fulfillment, okay? And in verse eight, he says this. This is the whole idea of this. Verse eight, and let them make, a sanctu- make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This is the point of the entire thing. God is going to come down and he's going to inhabit this. He's going to, this is going to be his dwelling. He's going to dwell with his people. This is God's desire. God knows that there's this chasm between us. He knows that sin separated us from him. And he knows that the chasm, like in, we sing it in the song, the chasm is far too wide, the chasm is far too high. He knows that. And because he knows that, he, and, and because he loves us, he's a God that's going to do something about that. And so he is going to have a dwelling place in the midst of his people. And it's called the tabernacle, which is a word that actually means dwelling. It's a dwelling place. The wilderness tabernacle pictures God coming to dwell with his people. God came and filled and dwelt in the wilderness tabernacle. It's also called the tent of meeting. Wilderness tabernacle, tent of meeting. And this is the prototype. Now the antitype is when God came and dwelt in another tabernacle, another tent. The tent of Jesus' flesh the tent of Jesus' flesh. And so this is what we're going to be looking at here. The embodiment of Jesus is God's tabernacle with men. Now, in order to construct the tabernacle, God instructed that, that an offering should be received for the building materials needed. And so God gave Moses a list of the materials that would be needed to construct the tabernacle. And I like it how he put it in there. I want to call your attention just to a couple things. Uh, Verse 2, he says, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. And that's the nature of a true offering. A true offering is, and as we'll go through this, we're going to come back to this point over and over and over again. God is looking for willing hearts, people that want to come and be his people, that want to come and to give. And so from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take 
my offering. And he gave them a list of all the materials. Verse, verse 3, and this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's, hairs, uh, goat's hair, ram's skins, dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for light, spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, onyx stones, and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Now the question is, if they were in slavery all those years, where did they get all this stuff for the offering? I love this. This is this. I love this, okay? Because you want to talk about God taking an offering. He doesn't take an offering with first without first having given you that which he wants you to give. Amen? And look at it. Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36. I'll have it up on the screen for you. Now the children of Israel... Now this is, this is literally when the Passover has happened, the firstborn of Egypt have died. Pharaoh's finally said, okay, go. Leave. Get out of here. Of course, he, he changes his mind and follows him into the Red Sea. That's another story. But anyways, on, right here... They're released to go. And here's what happens on their way out. Verse 35 says this. Is it up there on the screen? Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked, they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So literally, the this is what happens when you come out of slavery of sin. <laughs> you come out with a plunder. God is bringing you into his family. He's bringing you into a, a kingdom, not empty-handed, but with gifts, with stuff. And so he's given you his spirit. He's given you the gifts of the spirit. He's given you uh, an anointing. Man, I don't have time to preach all this tonight. This is, man, this is... Wild stuff. But he's given you gifts. And this is what the Lord does. Moses was given exact instructions for making the tabernacle, and those instructions were to be followed closely, exactly. I mean, they were to be followed right down to the last little infinitesimal detail. Now, there are many details of the tabernacle blueprint that foreshadow Christ, that foreshadow Jesus. And we have the benefit of looking back in time at the prototype and looking at the antitype. We have, a, we, we have a vantage point tonight. We can look all the way back to 1445 BC to what we're reading tonight and what we will read over the next few weeks of this prototype, the wilderness tabernacle in the Old Testament. But we also look back at the fulfillment of the prototype in the embodiment of Jesus Christ when God himself put on flesh, came into this world and, and closed the gap. This, the chasm, the, the one that was far too high. Each intricate detail God gave Moses down to the construction materials, fabric, color, embroidery designs, and the placement of each item paints a picture for us of Jesus, his person, his deity, his work, and his heart of love for you, for me, for, for everyone. The first piece of the tabernacle in the instructions 
was an item of the tabernacle furniture. And it is perhaps the most important piece of the tabernacle. Because it's a, it's a piece, it's a piece of furniture that actually is a picture for us of God's throne. It's God's throne. And so if God was going to set up a dwelling place on the earth, what's the first thing that he would mention? Well, I'm coming to earth. I'm going to have a throne down there, right? And so he talks to us about the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, many are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant from Sunday school or Bible or whatever, but, but many are more familiar with the Ark of the Covenant via Steven Spielberg, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I got to say that they, it looks like a pretty good representation of what the Ark, I think I got a picture. Yeah. This is uh, Indiana Jones, and this is where they're pulling it out of the, you know, thing, wherever. And, of course, now it's in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. somewhere <laughs> with all the other important stuff. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> so the Ark of the Covenant pictures Jesus. It pictures his throne, but it pictures Jesus. It, it, it pictures God taking up on himself flesh. Jesus is how we meet God. Jesus put it this way. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is how we meet God. Now, there are three things about the ark that tell us that Jesus is everything that we need. The first, and they're all C words, so if you're taking notes, this will be really easy. Okay, three things about the ark that tell us about Jesus and that he's everything that we need. First, it's construction, the construction of the ark. Let's go back to the text and pick it up in verse 10. It says this, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on its molding of gold all around. And you shall cast four rings of gold on it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. And the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. 
and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Okay, so remember, three things about the Ark of the Covenant that tell us about Jesus and that he's everything that we need. First, it's construction. The Ark was made of two materials, only two. It was made of acacia wood, which, was, which is a desert tree. If you go to the desert, you see this tree. If we could go to the desert right now, I would take you, I would show you this tree. I love this. I love these acacia wood trees, these acacia trees. It's a desert tree. And this was the wood that was used for making of the ark. It was made with acacia wood. The other material was gold. So basically the ark was like a box. It was a chest. We were given the dimensions. We were given it in cubits. And if you want to dive in and look at, I have all this in the book where it's down to the cubit and the cubit's 18 inches and all that. We're not going to get that far deep into this, all right? That's in the actual, you know, text. But it was a chest. It's like a box. It's made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. This points to the dual nature of the Son in the incarnation. Jesus in the flesh has two natures, Jesus Christ human, a human nature, and a God nature. The wood, the acacia wood, symbolizes, pictures for us, Christ in his humanity, in his human nature. And the gold, and this is taken out of ancient uh, civilizations. All ancient civilizations, gold was about their king, the royalty, and the kings were deities. And that's where we get this idea that flowed down through history, the divine right of kings, okay? So you had the acacia wood picturing the human nature of Christ, the gold picturing the, the God nature, the, 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 the deity of Christ. Jesus is, as theologians have called him, the God-man. He's the God-man. He's, you know... Marvel, none of the Marvel heroes have anything on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. They're all combined with man and insect or man and fish or man and, you know, I've lost track. You know, I, I just give up at this point. You know, man and machine, you know, which is kind of, I guess, where we're headed. You know, I'm not, but somebody is. <laughs> but the God man, the God man. And he's fully God and he's fully man. And so this is God coming down to where we were. This is God coming down to our level, to man's level. You know, we used to sing a song, he did not wait for me, but he came, right? He, he came down from heaven and, and, and he came to us and he, and, and he walked the, the earth. You know, I mean, he, he was born, Grew up, worked with his dad as a carpenter. You know, he walked the hills of Galilee and Judea. This is how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2. We referenced this actually on Wednesday night. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, you'll see it on the screen. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. God coming in the likeness of men. God became man and he took on flesh. And this, t- this tells us that he's what we need. We, we needed God to come down to our level. And that's what the construction of the Ark of the Covenant tells us. Secondly, its contents, the contents of the Ark. Moses was instructed to place two stone tablets called the testimony inside. You see this other graphic? Moses was the first to download something from the cloud to his tablet. (laughs) You know, you've seen this, you know, right? And he had two tablets. I'm glad you you laughing with me about that, you know. Because it's a little corny, yeah. (laughs) Moses was instructed to place the two tablets called the testimony inside the Ark of the Covenant. The testimony is the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. The testimony is the Ten Commandments. The Ark is called both the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Testimony. So if you read your Old Testament, if you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, if you read your Old Testament, you'll say the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. It's the same thing. It's the same box. The Ark, Moses was instructed to put the tablets, the Ten Commandments, inside the ark, in the, in the box. In that sense, the commandments were kept by the ark that represents Jesus. Remember the difference between all the religions of the world and Christianity? The point of the law was that we were incapable of keeping it. We can't keep the Ten Commandments some people feel like, you know, they're asked. There's a guy named Ray Comfort who goes around, he asks people, goes out on the beach in California, actually. If you see his videos, a lot of times they're literally at the Huntington Pier. And he'll ask people, you know, do, are you a good person? Pe- people think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. Oh, okay, well, let's just give you the good person test. <laughs> Have you ever told a lie? It's interesting how people think about that one for a little while. Like, really? 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 Come on. Really? You lied to your mom like way early on. Trust me. Okay. Have you ever... And he goes through the Ten Commandments. And basically, he gets to the end of it and he says, well, by your own admission, you're a liar, a thief, a, an adulterer at heart because Jesus said, even if you haven't committed adultery, Jesus said, if you... Look at a, lo- a woman lustfully in your heart. You've committed adultery. So you, you, and then there's all the other laws, right? So, I mean, the law is basically like a mirror that kind of lays our hearts bare before God. We'll get into that. Hang around. We'll get into that, the brazen labor mm-hmm. made from the looking glasses of the women. Okay, just a little teaser there. So couldn't keep it. We couldn't keep the law. There is one person who did. 
There is one person who did. Jesus did, right? He kept the commandments perfectly. He lived a completely sinless life. And I find that really amazing. I really find that amazing. You know, it'd be great to like if they would show, if they would do a movie, maybe Mel (laughs) can go back. I know he's working on the the sequel to The Passion. I'd like to see the prequel. (laughs) I'd like to see, now they did the nativity story. That's the pre-prequel. I'd like to see the one like just make some stuff up (laughs) about Jesus in his teenage years. And I'd like to see Mary say, you know, take out the trash. And I, you know, and Jesus go, okay, mom. (laughs) The Bible tells us that he was perfect. He was sinless. He did not transgress the law. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it would be on the screen. Speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was perfect. He committed no sin. There was no deceit. There was no guile. Nothing in his mouth. Nothing in his mind. Nothing in his mouth. Wow. Perfect. He's the only one who's kept the commandments. Jesus fulfilled the law. He was blameless and and sinless. And because he was blameless, he could become the perfect sinless sacrifice for us. He lived a perfect human life so that he could give us his perfection. The, 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 the exact thing that we were missing that we could never construct on our own. We could never do it. Our righteous deeds, remember what they were? Like dirty laundry. We, we could never pull this out from nowhere. Couldn't pull it out of a hat if we tried. But here's what God did. He came down to our level. He walked on earth and he lived a perfect life. And because he did that, he's able to offer to whosoever will come and believe upon him, he's able to offer you his perfect life for your not perfect life. In the book of Isaiah, the trade that is offered is beauty for ashes. Something beautiful, a beautiful life. Something beautiful for the, for the ashes that is really our lives without Christ. It's the best deal. Deal or no deal? It's the greatest deal in the universe. Amen? So that's the contents. The contents. The contents of the ark with the commandments. He kept the commandments perfectly for us so that we could share in his righteousness. Amen? And then one last point tonight. It's cover. The cover. The construction, the contents, the cover tells us about Jesus and that he's everything we need. The lid for the ark, its cover, it was called the mercy seat. It is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat which was the lid, the cover, was made of pure gold, absolute pure gold, no acacia wood in that seat, in that lid, in that cover, pure gold. Two gold cherubs were attached to the ends of the lid, facing each other with outspread wings. 
on each end, one cherub on each end, and their wings spread towards the center and their eyes looking towards the center because what happened on the center of that seat was very, very important. Amen? And they were looking down toward the, toward the mercy seat. Now, cherubs. Cherubs are not... Like, if you Google cherub right now and pull up images, you will get this Renaissance picture of a chubby baby with little wings, you know, from like the 17th, 18th century. You know, the little cherubs. Oh, and we say things like, oh, isn't she, she's a little cherub, or isn't he a little cherub? You know, no. <laughs> cherubs were, are among the most powerful of God's created beings. These are, these are powerful, powerful uh, beings. In fact, Satan was a, is a, was a cherub. He was, Isaiah and Ezekiel says that he was the cherub who covered. And we'll get into that, that job description of the cherub here in a second. The mercy seat, the cover had a very specific purpose. Oh, let me back up. I skipped ahead here. Cherubs are the, are the highest order of angels. They are really the super angels. The, I don't even like to use the term angels so much so because the word angel is really not a descriptor of the type of being they are, but really a job description. An angel is a job description. They are a spiritual being, okay? Um, and cherubs, and we learn this from the scripture, are, are guardians of the throne of God. Guardians of the galaxy. We've got guardians of the throne, right? Well, I, I've really woven in some marvel there, haven't I? Like, you know, I've, got, like, I've, got, I've got at least five gold stars for this. I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> Guardians of the throne, the cherubs. We see it in, um, well, first, there was a cherub that was placed when man was excommunicated from the garden and there was a cherub placed at the entrance of the garden with flaming sword to, so as to block the way to the, to the tree of life. And then in Revelation, in, in John, uh, in the, the Revelation, in uh, Revelation chapter 4, John uh, tells us what he sees, and what he sees is heaven. And what he sees specifically is the throne room of heaven. And you read it. And he, 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 he describes it. It's the throne room of heaven. And in the chapter, John sees the throne of God in heaven, and it's surrounded by four living creatures. These living creatures, these are the cherubim surrounding the throne. These are the cherubim. A, cher, a cherub is singular. Cherubim is plural. I am is plural in Hebrew. So they surround the throne in that sense. They guard it. Now this cover, the mercy seat, had a very specific purpose. This is all to say that you had cherub, cherubim on the mercy seat with their wings folded to the center, looking at the center of the seat. The cover had a very specific purpose. The mercy seat functioned as an atonement cover. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Israel's high priest sprinkled blood 
blood sprinkled from the, the sacrifice, he would take some of that blood, he would walk into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat exactly on that place between the cherubim where the eyes of the cherubim were looking because that was the, the place of atonement. It was the place of God's mercy. It's the place where God covers. So the cover was a place of covering. The cover was a place of covering. This, of course, pictures Jesus' perfect work of atonement that he carried out on the, on the cross of Calvary. And whosoever receives and has the work of Christ's atonement uh, given to them, that they receive that, then you, then you therefore, ha having received the benefit of the work of the atonement of Christ, you then have access into the throne room of God. Remember, when Jesus died and he gave up his spirit on the cross, what happened? The, the, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and, and just threw open the way for the, right to the seat. Yes. Right to the, there it was. Boom. Oh no, what are we going to do? This thing, the curtain. Go to Bed Bath & Beyond and get it. No, no, you're not going to fix this with a trip to Bed Bath & Beyond. This was the veil that was split in two that opened up the way for whosoever will receive the work of the covering of the, of the atonement can come to the covering the mercy seat to the place of the mercy seat. And this is where we meet with God. The cover was a seat. The Ark of the Covenant also pictured God's throne. It was carried with poles on either side the way the ancient royal sedans would be carried, the royal sedan being the portable throne of the king. So this was literally the portable throne of Israel's king in their midst. The Ark of the Covenant was the portable throne of the King of Israel, Yahweh God. Now, I want to draw your attention. We're drawing to a close. Exodus 25, 22. This is at the, the bottom of our text that we read today. And I know I read about cubits and stuff, and you haven't read anything about cubits in a long time, probably, mm -hmm. unless you're reading through Exodus. But this is an important verse. This is, I think this is one of the one of the great verses in the Old Testament. Exodus 25, 22, it'll be on the screen. And there I will meet you, meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. I love everything about this verse because it tells us so much about this cover. It tells us that this cover is a mercy seat. It tells us that this is the place where God wants to meet us. It tells us that he wants to meet us above the cover, above the seat. We don't meet God with what's inside. We, we can't come to God through what is inside the, 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 the ark. The, the commandments are inside the ark. Jesus kept them perfectly. We can't approach him by thinking we're going to figure it out and we're going to get our life together and we're going to be good enough. We can't come to him by virtue of the commandments. We have to come to him. He wants to meet us at one place and one place only, and that is the mercy seat above the covering. Amen. God's throne is called the mercy seat. Isn't that amazing? This is, a, this is what you want to plaster that all over social media. Because of the distortion of... of 
of, of who God is characterized to be, God has a throne and it's called the mercy seat. God wants to have mercy. He has mercy and mercy and abundance of mercy and great grace. Now I want to wrap this all up with, with a promise that Jesus gave. And then we're going to go to the table of the Lord. But Jesus gave a promise in the book of Revelation. He, he dictated seven letters, Jesus did, to John, to seven different churches. In the seventh church, the, the letter he dictated to the seventh church, which is the church of Laodicea, he gave a promise. And this is it. Revelation 3, 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the, the promise to the overcomer. Amen. And how do we overcome? We overcome by the, well, the book of Revelation tells us how they overcame, right? The blood of the lamb and the, and the word of their testimony, right? The blood of Christ, the covering, the, atone, the atoning work of Christ, and the testimony of, uh, of confession, of trusting in that, in God, and in his, in his covering alone. Amen? And if you have received that unto yourself, you have promises upon top of promises upon top of promises. And one of which is we're going to just all pile up on the throne, throne of God. It's going to be a great big party in front of the Crystal Sea, which I already have a condo reserved for me beachfront property right on the crystal sea i've already put that request in and uh i'm being funny but you know you know what i mean but this is for you this is what jesus did this is this this answers the question of does this not show you the difference between every other philosophy every other religion that there is nothing like this nothing in all the universe like this and what Jesus did for us. He came down. He closes the gap. He deals with the problem. He offers you perfection for unrighteousness, beauty for ashes, and that's the deal.